Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will greatly rejoice and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendour of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendour of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The second reading can be found on page 1011 and is Mark chapter 7, verse 31. So page 1011, Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went down through Sion, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hands on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd... Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Epatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them, not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, 
the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Rachel, thanks very much indeed. Do please keep your Bible open to Mark chapter 7 uh, that we've just had read for us. And I think you'll also find it helpful if you uh, dig out the, the yellow uh, handout uh, insert. It's uh, give you a guide of where we're going in the next few moments. And uh, then with your Bible and the, uh, the handout uh, balanced on your knee, I'm going to pray uh, for us now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as people stood amazed in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he walked this earth, we pray that uh, we too would be amazed as we uh, engage with him in your word, as we think of him. Amazed not just here, uh, not just now, but amazed enough to want to open our whole lives to him, uh, that we might live for him wholeheartedly, unreservedly, uh, both now and for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me tell you about my auntie Nellie. She was um, my mum's aunt, actually, um, born at the beginning of the 20th century, around 1902, 1903, I, I think, around about then. Uh, auntie Nellie was born deaf. Back then, of course, medicine and medical advances were not as, as they are today, and so uh, who knows whether she could have been helped more had she been born 100 years later. Anyway, she had virtually almost no hearing, and as a result, the way she spoke was unintelligible to me and to most people she met. She shouted words that were, certainly to me, incomprehensible. As a little boy, I found Auntie Nellie frightening. Her disability left her very frustrated as she couldn't make herself understood by most around her. And being un unable to communicate and very frustrated, uh, she got angry and was largely cut off from society. Her disability had an adverse effect on the relationships around her. She was um, isolated, lonely, even though she was deeply loved by her nearest and dearest. Now today, in Mark chapter 7, we meet a man who suffered like Auntie Nellie. We don't know his name. I've called him Derek. Derek's physical condition is a picture of his spiritual condition. Uh, cut off from others. Lonely, isolated. Derek lived in a region known as the Decapolis, an area comprising of ten cities east of the nation of Israel. Look with me at verse 31 of our passage. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Now the map on the handout will give you an idea of the, the geographical location that we're talking about. Now you'll see Israel, Judea on the left, the Decapolis is on the right. It's a different region completely. But as you look at it, please note that this is not just a, a geographical statement. It has social implications and even more significantly, theological implications. The, the Decapolis is a region outside of Israel. Derek then was not an Israelite. He was a, a Gentile. And, and all that Gentiles are is uh, anybody who is not an Israelite, so it's, it's the Israelites, so it's somebody from Israel, and then the rest of the world, the Gentiles, the nations. Now, everything in this section of Mark's Gospel, from chapter, four, from chapter 7, verse 24, through to chapter 8, verse 13, everything in this section happens in Gentile territory, non-Israelite territory, and that is highly significant. Derek's condition has left him marginalized and 
ostracised from society, and his lineage, his ancestry, him being a Gentile, has left him outside of God's society. So he's a Gentile, a non-Jew. He had no place in God's family. He was ostracised and alienated from God. Now, Derek is a picture, theologically, of us all. The fallen human condition of every man and woman, a sin, leaves us all cut off from God and out of relationship with other people to a greater or lesser extent. You know, our relationships are not as good as they could be and they are, we are certainly not right with God. That said, Derek did have some friends who cared for him. Look at verse 32. There, that is there in the Decapolis, there some people brought to Jesus, a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on the man. Now, if you've read Mark's Gospel, you'll, you'll know that Jesus has already visited this region, the Decapolis, back in chapter 5. Again, if you've read Mark's Gospel, you, you might well remember this. He encountered a demon-possessed man. And uh, you'll remember that he delivered the man from the evil spirits that possessed him and sent them into a herd of pigs. And the pigs then rushed down a steep bank and like lemmings, they leapt to their death, drowning in the lake below. And the reason I refer to that is what happens at the end of that encounter. There's no need to turn to it, but we read this in chapter 5, verse 20. The previously demon-possessed man, quote, began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. The point is this, Jesus' reputation in this region was well and truly known. Jesus was known to be a man of mighty and powerful miracles, so no wonder when Derek's friends heard that that Jesus was back in town, no wonder that they took Derek to Jesus and begged him to place his hand on him to heal him. And so the scene is set. Jesus in a foreign land with a Gentile man who is deaf and dumb standing before him. Look, we've uh, had the story read to us already. Rachel has read it for us. So we don't, I don't need to issue a, a spoiler alert to tell you that Jesus healed Derek. We know how the encounter ends. The question is, what does it all mean? Well, first it tells us who Jesus is. Uh, you'll see that, head, that, um, that first point and heading on the outline. Uh, uh, it tells us who Jesus is. And it tells us, firstly, that he is saviour beyond Israel. See, by healing Derek, a Gentile man, in a thoroughly Gentile area, Jesus is showing himself not to be just the saviour of Israel, of Jewish people, but the saviour of all nations. Now, that might well be blindingly obvious to you and me. I mean, we are here, after all, thousands of miles from Israel. We've gathered in order to worship Jesus, and the vast majority of us are not Jewish, and we have no claim to any Jewish lineage or heritage. So, of course, we believe that Jesus is Savior beyond Israel. That's obvious. But this was something that Mark needed his first readers to grasp, which is why this whole section happens on non-Jewish Gentile territory with Gentile people. Last week, Jesus encountered a Syrophoenician woman and healed her daughter, Next week, we'll see Jesus feeding 4,000 Gentile people in a non-Jewish, in a Gentile region. Jesus, in this section, is saviour of anybody and everybody. Gentile women, Gentile men, Gentile children, Gentile individuals, and crowds of Gentiles. Jesus is not just a localised saviour. He is the promised Messiah who would save the nations, the Gentiles. 
Which is why you and I can be here. Why Gentile people can be part of God's family. Mark writes this then to expand the minds of his original readers who would have been very parochial when it came to the extent of the scope of the saving ability of the Messiah. Now all of that is obvious. And yet, and yet, we are not so different from those first readers. Despite what we know of Jesus, despite the fact that most of us are not Jewish, still many of us, and may I suggest all of us at some point, look at other people who are very different to us and think they'll never become Christians. We look at people from different social backgrounds, begging on the streets, walking the red light districts of the city, and we think they'd never become a Christian. We look at people with very different attitudes to life, those in our office who live materialistic and hedonistic lifestyles, and we think they'll never become Christians. We look at people with lifestyles that are fundamentally opposed to God's way of living. You know, our friends who sleep around or, or who have no qualms about walking all other, over others to further their career. Or who, who don't think twice about dodging the taxman and who swear like troopers and we think they'd never become a Christian. But you see what we're doing when we think like that? We are saying Jesus can't save them. Jesus isn't that powerful that he could break into their world, if I can put it this way, into their territory. His saving work doesn't go that far. He's not the saviour of all. You see, it's not just the first readers who limit Jesus, who think he's only a saviour to some areas. This section of Mark's gospel fundamentally opposes that way of thinking. But there is more to this further. Whether we realise it or not, most of the time, most of us are looking for a saviour. Now you will sit here and say, yes, that's why I'm here this morning. But I'm saying something a bit different. Even committed Christians, you and me, even those of us who know the saviour, the Lord Jesus, I want to suggest that even we keep looking for saviours, other saviours, other than Jesus, to give us what we so crave. Stay with me a moment. We crave recognition, status, comfort, acceptance, safety. Of course we do. We all want to be safe. We want to be accepted. But rather than find those things met in the one true God and in who we are in Christ, we we keep looking to other things to give us what we so crave. I could give loads of examples. Let me give you one. It's not unusual for us to look for those things in our careers. We look for our career to give us recognition and status. Then we feel as if we are someone. It brings us acceptance. So then, you see, my my career becomes my saviour. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with career. I'm just saying we can look to it for the wrong things. It can become my saviour, saving me from being a nobody, because I fear that. But listen to this, career is a very localised saviour. So yes, in your career you may well be somebody, respected by others in your field, but go somewhere socially for an evening or on holiday where people know nothing about you and even when you tell people that you're, a, well, I don't know, a, a consultant surgeon or, or a lecturer at the university with a PhD and, and recognised as a leading academic in your field or, or you tell them that you're a vicar, 
Yeah, no, that never goes down well. I don't, I don't tell them that. Anyway, when you tell them, you know, where, who you are and, and, and how fantastic you are, people outside of your area of expertise sometimes are not impressed by your remarkable achievement in your career. And then in an instant, in one encounter, the recognition and respect and status you so crave has gone, disappeared instantly. Do you see the point? Career is a very localized savior. It can't give you what you crave beyond the borders of your expertise. And that kind of localized savior is hopeless because if you lose your job or when you retire or even when you're in a social setting like the one I've just suggested, the things you so crave and long for from your job melt away. They're gone. Now that is true of all the saviors of the world and we could do this with many different areas of life. They are very localized but Jesus isn't. Wherever he goes in the world and whoever he meets he is the savior of the world, the savior of all people. And if you are in him then when it comes to recognitional status you are and always are a child of the king. You are royalty and you are recognized as such by the highest authority in the universe wherever you go and whoever you meet. Isn't that wonderful? So this section of Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus is saviour beyond Israel, that he is the saviour of the Gentiles and of the whole world. And it tells us that he is mighty God. See, uh, there's Derek, the deaf and dumb man, standing before Jesus. And look what happens next, verse 33. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. It was truly miraculous. Please don't lose it. I know lots of us here do read our Bibles regularly and we know this is what Jesus does. And we've read this story before and yeah, Jesus healed a deaf man. It's miraculous. Not only does he immediately begin to hear, but end of verse five, did you see it there? He began to speak plainly, immediately. Instantly, he could speak words that everyone understood. It's astonishing because it takes people years to learn to speak. Even today, when deaf people benefit from the most remarkable scientific and medical advancements, they are, and, they, and they, as a result, are given the ability to hear, it still takes them years of speech therapy to learn to speak differently. But not when Jesus healed Derek. Instantly, verse 35, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. So it begs the question, who can do this? And we don't have to work out the answer ourselves because the Bible tells us. It's a great rule of thumb, by the way. You don't ever have to guess when you're reading the Bible. You just have to read another part of the Bible and it explains the Bible to you. The Bible interprets the Bible. So who is this that can do this? Well, that's exactly why we had Isaiah 35 read to us. So um, keep your finger uh, in Mark chapter 7. Uh, or, or a piece of paper and come with me to Isaiah 35, page 719 and the reading that Rachel read for us just a little bit earlier, page 719. I won't read it all, let me read from verse three. Isaiah 35, verse three. We're asking the question, who can do this? Who is it that heals uh, a deaf man 
and instantly helps him to speak clearly. Verse, verse, uh, chapter 35, verse three. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the needs that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. See what Isaiah is saying? Isaiah is saying there's gonna be a day when God will come. And what's gonna happen when God comes, verse five, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leak like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Isaiah says when God comes, the deaf will hear and the mute will speak. And that is precisely what we see when, in Mark chapter seven as we go back there now. Derek, the deaf and dumb man, hears and speaks when God comes. And so this tells us that Jesus is none other than God himself, the God promised in the Old Testament. Please be clear that Jesus is not just another human being. Yes, he is fully human, but he is also fully God. It's why we read uh, in the, uh, earlier in the service the creed. He is very God of very God, true God of true God. Now let me ask you, are you clear on this? Because many churchgoers are not. You know, I ask sometimes ask people, uh, who do you think God is? They will say lots of, th- who do you think Jesus is? They will say lots of things that are true about Jesus, but they won't get to the point where they say he is God. And desperately, some church leaders are not clear on this. So there's a church not a couple of miles from here, which over Christmas denied the deity of Christ. They clearly haven't read their Bible properly. This wonderful incident tells us who Jesus is, that he's the saviour for everyone and that he is God. Uh, Second, it tells us what Jesus is like, the second point on the handout. And it tells us and shows us that he is a compassionate and tender saviour and God. It's wonderful. See, we'll look at the verses in a moment, but just uh, just this point as we head into this point. This all-powerful God who is saviour of the whole world is wonderfully compassionate. Now, that is a surprise. When we are given power, because we are sinful, it is very hard for us to use the power we have for the good of others. I'm not saying that nobody ever does that. I'm just saying it's very hard to do that and to do it fully all the time when you've got a lot of power, whether it's power in relationships or power in politics or power in business. When we have a lot of power, we are rarely able to use it fully and only for the good of others. But here is God, the one with absolute power in the whole universe, power over the whole world, and he is wonderfully and utterly compassionate. Uses his power for good. Look at the first thing. It's just the details that show us this. Look at the first thing Jesus does when Derek is brought to him. Verse 33 after he took him aside, after he took him aside, that is, after they brought him to him, he took him aside, away from the crowd. On the uh, few occasions when I've needed to have a medical examination or a consultation, I've always wanted it to be done in private. You know, I'm very pleased that the doctors have little rooms where you go in there, rather than them saying, "Let's some, um, you know, strip off in front of everybody in the um, uh, in the reception area." I'm really pleased they take me to one side to do any... Anyway, let's not think about that too much. (laughs) If I'm facing a huge and significant emotional and life-changing event in my life, I don't want crowds of strangers looking on. I want you to do that away from the crowd, please. Jesus is wonderfully sensitive to that. You see, here is this man. And Jesus has not come to show off his power to the world. 
We often talk about him performing miracles. Of course he does, but he's not a performer. He doesn't put on a performance. He's not here to dazzle the crowd. He, he, he's not come to be a miracle worker. He's the compassionate saviour of the world. So he takes Derek aside. Then, verse 33, he puts his fingers in his ears and touched his tongue. Now, we know Jesus doesn't have to touch anything in order to heal someone. We saw that last week when he healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. The little girl wasn't even in Jesus' presence. And yet, verse 29 and 30, Jesus just spoke the word and the girl was delivered. See, Jesus is so powerful that all he has to do is say the word and people are healed because that is how God operates. He says the word and he creates the world. just speaks and it happens. But you see, here is Jesus faced with someone who can't hear the words. Now, that doesn't mean he wouldn't be able to heal him. He could say the word and the man could still be healed. But he's, he's dealing tenderly with the man. It isn't just about showing that I can perform miracles. I'm dealing with this man with great compassion. And because he can't hear, what is he going to do? Well, he takes him to one side. But you know, any time that people take me off to one side, they usually rebuke me. I think I'm in trouble. So he's taking him to one side. Now he's showing him tenderness. He's saying, look, I'm going to do something to your ears and your tongue and your mouth, and your dumbness. I'm going to do something. And he does it with, with actions, because the man can't hear. He puts his fingers in his ears and touches his tongue, and then verse 34, he looked up to heaven. Again, he's communicating with Derek. Yeah, what is about to happen to you is from above, he says, by looking up. Maybe he's saying, I'm from above. The details are, are very special. I, I found them quite moving as I was reading this in the study this week. This is like no other miracle because Jesus cares for Derek and Derek is not just anybody, he's somebody. He's a precious individual with individual needs. And just as Jesus treats Derek personally, know that Jesus will deal with you very personally and tenderly. Isn't it wonderful? We're talking about the creator of the entire world. And yes, he's the saviour of everyone. But he cares for you. And he'll take your, who you are and your, consider, your, your particular circumstances and needs into consideration when he's dealing with you. Isn't that lovely? What a God, what a saviour. So this tells us who Jesus is. He's the God and Savior of all mankind. It tells us what kind of God and Savior he is, that even though he's the all-powerful God of the whole world, he's compassionate and tender. And third, and, and over, the, over the sheet on the handout, if you're still following, it tells us what we all need. Now, and as we've already said, Derek was a unique individual. That, all that stands, yet Mark tells us his story because... Derek's condition represents the state we are all in. We are all spiritually deaf, unable to hear who Jesus is. And just as Derek was a Gentile cut off from God and from society, so are we, by our sin, cut off from God and from others. Now we, we kind of see that in Jesus' side. You see it there in verse 34. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphtha. Now what's this sigh all about? Well, Jesus sighs a few verses later as well. Uh, if you look on to chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are refusing to 
to believe who Jesus is. In verse 12, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Jesus already done loads of miraculous signs. They're still asking for more evidence. You've all the evidence you need. You just won't believe. This sigh in 8.12 was a sigh of deep frustration flowing from the unbelief, the sin of the Pharisees. It helps us to understand what this sighing is. Jesus sighing here in this section is all tied up with, being, with living in, being in a, a sinful, broken world. So as Jesus looked at Derek... His sigh expressed his frustration with a fallen, broken, sinful world. I'm not saying, by the way, that um, Derek was more sinful than other people. It's just that his deafness was a result of being in a broken world, wasn't it? So being profoundly deaf and dumb is a result of this broken world. And it bothers Jesus deeply that this world is so distorted by sin. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? You, know, you watch the news. I know it's all Brexit at the moment, but um, you watch the news, and, and sometimes, I don't know whether you feel this way, I feel, I've, I feel like you know, sighing deeply. You know, I just feel so troubled by it all. Well, you know, Jesus feels that more than we do. And, of course, the answer to this sinful world, the way to bring people back to him, back in relationship with God, is Jesus himself. Um, And what we need, what we all need, is to hear who Jesus is, to hear clearly, uh, to have our, our, our lives open to him. So Jesus sighed and said, verse 34, if after, which means be opened. Wonderfully, it might have been the first word that Derek ever heard clearly. Be opened, if after. It's a word about much more than the opening of the ears, I'm told. Cranfield believes the word if after is about the opening of the whole person. The opening and the cleansing of the heart as we've been considering since the beginning of chapter 7. See, Derek didn't just need his ears opening, he needed his whole life to be opened up to God as we all do. So it's not just about ears being open, but it does begin with our ears. The physical healing from deafness for Derek is a spiritual necessity for everyone who is going to be saved. We need to hear clearly. Now if I appear to have just made a huge leap with that statement, take a look with me at chapter 8, verse 17 and 18, which we'll be getting to in a few weeks' time. You see, uh, this section really from 8.14, this little section from chapter 8.14 is a kind of summary of what's gone before because loads of things that have gone on before are referenced here. For example, in verses 19 and 20, the disciples have seen Jesus perform two feeding miracles, uh, one in chapter 8 and one in chapter 6. They've seen them, but they don't understand them. That's verses 19 and 20. And their lack of understanding is they don't understand who Jesus really is. And it's a chronic problem. And so he says, verse 17, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still, see, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? See, the disciples have physical ears, ears that work physically, but they don't hear spiritually. That's a reference back to this healing. 
What happened to Derek needs to happen to everyone if they're going to be saved, no matter who we are. This is even true of Jesus' Jewish disciples, so how much more it is true of Gentile unbelievers. We're all spiritually deaf and we need to have our ears opened in order to have our whole lives, our whole selves, our hearts cleansed and open to God through Jesus. Now, if I've lost you in the detail of that last section, that's the simple point. We need spiritual healing if we're going to be saved and cleansed by Jesus. That's it. Hearing is a remarkable thing, isn't it? Most of us here have good hearing or good enough to hear. Mine's gone a bit. I've had tests that show the top and bottom range of my hearing has gone. So I do find it very hard to hear things when I'm in a crowded room, which is why if you're talking to me in a crowded room, I keep saying, sorry, what? I don't say what, I've been brought up well. I actually say sorry. I mean what, but I say sorry. Now, that is really, really inconvenient when you can't hear well. But, but let me tell you, you and I have two much bigger problems with our hearing. The problems of distraction and selection. Firstly, the problem of distraction. Now, look, at this point, I'm going to confess something to you. And as I confess it, I want all married couples here to be sure you keep your elbows in. I don't want to see any of you digging your partner in the ribs as I make this point, Okay. My problem of distraction is most obvious when I'm watching sport or on television. Ladies, keep your elbows in. Caroline will speak to me and I'll make all the right noises to suggest that I'm listening to every word she's saying when I don't actually hear a word she said. And I don't only want elbows in, I want you not to be glaring at your partner at this point. Okay, no glaring, no elbows. Because the point is, this is not the first, it's not first and foremost about the problem of failing to listen to our spouse. No, the problem of distraction is a problem when it comes to our relationship with God. We are so distracted by the things of this world that we don't hear when God speaks to us. We can appear to be listening. We can be here in church and as God's word is read, we might appear to be focused and engaged, but our minds can be far, far away. That's precisely what Jesus said at the beginning of this chapter. Do you remember where we started a couple of weeks ago? Chapter 7, verse 6. These people honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. I'm singing all the songs, but I'm not actually engaging in my heart. And it's not just about Sundays, it can happen right through life. So here we are at the beginning of this new year, encouraging one another to spend time reading the Bible and praying. Andy's been doing that helpfully with these little interviews each each week. But look, we can read the Bible every day and still not be paying any real attention to it, not putting it into practice not only when we read it because our minds are distracted by other things. And of course, that's why some people don't even bother taking, making the time to read the Bible. They're distracted by other things that are more important. Look, we all have the time to read the Bible. We all have the same hour. We all have 24 hours. We just choose to use it in different ways. If we don't read the Bible, we're saying, I'm distracted by other things. Other things are more important. So the problem of distraction affects our hearing. And then there's the problem of selection, selective hearing. How does it go when we're frustrated with someone? You know your problem. You only hear what you want to hear. We say it to our children. Say it to people who madden us. Say it when people don't take any notice of our good advice. Well, we always think our advice is good. Well, maybe sometimes it is, but they don't listen. They only hear what they want to hear. How often do we see it in ourselves and how often do we confess it to God? Lord, I'm sorry that I only hear what I want to hear, that I am very selective in my hearing. 
I want to hear about your love and grace and acceptance of me. I want to hear that you'll forgive me whatever I do. I want to hear that Jesus' death has won eternity for me, but I don't want to hear that your grace extends to people I don't like. And I don't want to hear that, you, that I must forgive those who've hurt me. And I don't want to hear that I must tell others about you even when they reject me. And I don't want to hear about your view of human gender distinctives and sexuality when it doesn't fit in with my life or means I need to challenge people in my family who have chosen to ignore the clear and plain teaching of your word. And I don't want to hear about taking up my cross and living a sacrificial life for Jesus. I'm selective in my hearing. I don't want to open up my whole life to the Lord. Distraction and selective hearing, we all have a problem with it. It's, of course, the reason why some never become Christians, because they won't put the distractions aside, or they've not, they're not pre- prepared to hear what is actually being said about Jesus. They've selectively heard, so they've never heard the whole truth, only the things they want to hear. And it's why many Christians are never really fully sold out for Christ. Why many of us never open up our whole lives to Jesus because distractions stop us from hearing the real call on our life or because we're selective in our hearing about what it means to follow Jesus. So we know nothing in our lives of denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Following Jesus doesn't really cost us at all. Like Derek, we need to have our ears open to hear clearly in order for our whole lives to be open to God. Indeed, in response to this, we should pray that the Lord would open our ears so that we would live wholeheartedly for him. That, I think, is the big application of what we need to do today. Pray to him that our ears and lives would be open to him and to his word. And if that sounds scary, opening our whole lives up to God, remember who he is. He is the saviour of the whole world, not just a localised God. He can give you what you long for all the time, wherever you are. Whereas all the other things you look to can never deliver like that. He is the only one who can bring you the salvation and security you long for wherever you are. Remember that he is the the one who is powerful over all the world, but he doesn't abuse his power. He's compassionate. He'll deal with you tenderly and with great loving kindness. He wants the best for you. Remember these great truths about who he is, and you know there is no danger when we open our hearts and lives to him. Indeed, praying earnestly that He'd open our ears and then our hearts and lives to him is the very best thing we can pray for ourselves. Let's pray together. A moment of silence for you to bring your own prayers to God. Perhaps a time when uh, we confess that we've been uh, both distracted and selective in our hearing.
as we confess, a time for us in the silence to ask God to open our ears and indeed to open our hearts to him that we might live wholeheartedly for him.